0: The recent death of friend star Matthew Perry has placed a spotlight on a medical career that many of us don't often think about, toxicology. This field primarily focuses on types of poisons and is usually broken into a few different categories. Clinical toxicology occurs when someone is rushed to the ER for an overdose and physicians need to know which compounds they consumed workplace, and athletic drug testing both involve this science as well through testing for banned substances. But the branch most of us think of, especially after a high-profile death is in the news, is forensic toxicology.
1: That comes up a lot when you think particularly about celebrity deaths. The process there is very intricate, whether you're a celebrity or not. First of all, we like to collect many different samples from the deceased. That would include blood, That would include urine, and it may include different tissues. For example, the brain, it could include pieces of the liver, kidney. And so examples that you might think of there, patients who may have been poisoned by ethylene glycol, which is antifreeze, we might see crystals in their kidney, and that's one of the ways that we pick it up.
0: That's Dr. Barbara Jean Mignani, a world-renowned expert in clinical chemistry and toxicology and professor of anatomic and clinical pathology emerita at Tufts University School of Medicine. She says the first step in the forensic process is conducting a very generic screening for illicit drugs.
1: And those would be things like a class of drugs like amphetamines, barbiturates, benzodiazepines, then some specific drugs like marijuana or cocaine, and then again, a class of drugs, opiates, and then some specific drugs that fall into that category of opioids. Okay, not naturally occurring, but synthetic or semi-synthetics like fentanyl and oxycodone. And we've heard so much about that in, you can't see a death or hear about a death without those drugs coming up. So very important to test for those.
0: If anything from that first analysis comes back positive, the toxicologist then runs a more specific test to confirm the
1: results. It's a two-step process, but I only mentioned just a handful of drugs. Again, think of all the compounds that are out there, different kind of alcohols, volatiles.
0: And it's not always substances that someone has intentionally consumed. Some workplaces like farms and factories expose workers to various toxic chemicals that can show up in the report.
1: So, that would be something where if we had history on the patient that might point to a particular compound, we might want to go down that particular path. So, it can help whittle down which way you want to go by learning a little more about the patient's surroundings at death. Where were they found? What were the circumstances? Were there any drug paraphernalia present? What were the medication bottles? Were there pills found? And all of those can be analyzed separately.
0: So the seemingly simple two-step process usually becomes a long and involved operation and one that isn't just confined to a lab. In order for toxicologists to know what they should be testing for, Mignani says they often have to go into the field and investigate for
1: themselves. You go to the scene. What does the scene look like? Are there pill bottles around? Can you check the medicine cabinet and see what kind of prescriptions or the pharmacy, what prescriptions were prescribed for the patient? And are there any there that are from the neighbor? Which sometimes you might see, right? If someone is taking someone else's medication. Now, for some more interesting political poisonings, you might wonder... What party might be responsible for this? What are the kinds of things that they're interested in? Organophosphates, Novacex, sarin, any of these sort of more complicated and certainly more sophisticated poisons. So you can get directed in certain paths.
0: Mignani says it's a team effort. Forensic toxicologists work side by side with law enforcement and death scene investigators to put all the pieces together. However, sometimes they can have a good guess of what to test for based on how the body looks and smells.
1: Let's say you bring a body in and the body is a very cherry red color. All of a sudden the skin just looks very cherry red. Well, that indicates that there's a good chance carbon monoxide was the poisoning because carbon monoxide, when it saturates the blood, turns the muscle and the skin this very cherry red color. Also, particular odor, for example, if you smell a certain odor of the body or around the mouth, that can also lead you in a certain direction. Cyanide, as an example, some people can smell a bitter almond smell, okay? And some organophosphates, which are used as terrorist agents, smell a little bit like garlic.
0: But even if some poisons are obvious... The scientists only have a limited window of time to collect usable samples once the body enters the morgue. Mignani says that these samples are collected from different parts of the body, depending on what substances you're looking for.
1: Let me use something like heroin as an example, okay? Heroin has a very short half-life. It may be in the blood for about mm, four to six minutes tops. So you're going to be looking for an intermediate metabolite, which you may then find in urine. And so sometimes when patients come in the emergency department, we're only looking in urine because urine can contain metabolites that you might not otherwise find in the blood. When testing for heavy metals, Mignani
0: says the best place to look is in the patient's hair.
1: And so you can actually take a piece of hair, you can divide it up from root to the end and I can cut it in inches. And I can tell you over a certain period of time, they were exposed to let's say arsenic or something over a period of time. If you figure the hair grows about what, maybe a centimeter or so a month, something like that, you can actually sort of get a timeline.
0: So knowing where to look is often just as important as knowing what to look for. When taking blood samples, forensic toxicologists use two main sources peripheral blood, which is usually taken from the femoral artery in the thigh, and blood taken directly from the heart.
1: And the reason I say we look at both peripheral blood and heart blood is because the concentrations can be different. Some drugs, when the body dies, because the pH of the body, so you become more acidic. And when you become more acidic, drugs tend to redistribute differently in the body and you might get an elevated concentration of a drug in the heart. But if you look at the peripheral blood, you'll see that it was, let's say, in a therapeutic concentration.
0: For example, let's say someone taking antibiotics suddenly died in a car accident. Blood samples taken directly from the heart would show super high concentrations of their medication, almost like they were abusing it.
1: But when you look at the peripheral you see that the concentration is therapeutic, what you would have expected. So you're then thinking, okay, this was probably, let's say a heart attack, even though you might be able to see it physically as well. But my point is it's not a drug overdose or something that happened to cause the event that the car accident, it really has to do with the fact that it's where you sample. But
0: the viability of a sample really depends on how it's stored. Contamination can happen during any point in the forensic process. So proper storage is crucial to getting
1: accurate results. When you collect samples, we collect them in a certain kind of preservative, which prevents either bacterial growth and or metabolism of the drug away so that you lose it. Okay, because it can get metabolized by certain chemicals that are still present in blood. That would normally have been happening even when a patient was alive. So it has to be preserved properly. And so that's very important. And also you have to make sure that you don't obviously contaminate it with anything else.
0: In order to reduce the risk of contamination, the field uses a chain of custody, meaning that every action must be witnessed and documented.
1: If I'm collecting a particular tissue sample or blood sample, I put it in a jar or tube, it gets labeled. And I make sure I attest to I collected it, what time it has to be stored in a safe, locked usually, either room or refrigerator, wherever it is. It might depend on you know the place. And then the person who removes that has to sign and say, now I removed it from refrigerator A, is going to my bench. I'm going to work on my bench and analyze it. And then I'm going to put it back.
0: While this process ensures that the samples stay preserved, it also guarantees that specimen A did, in fact, come from patient A and nothing got switched around. Mignani says the whole process can last for a few weeks.
1: If you think about it, we have to have proper collection, we have to have documentation, we have initial testing, we have confirmatory testing. All that takes time. And again, you may do something thinking one way, then you may get additional evidence that comes up later that suggests that you should explore further. And then the last part of that is you may actually be waiting for other agencies to come together with their findings so that you can put the whole picture together.
0: The toxicologist may even want to do one more test to determine the dosage of a particular drug, whether it was therapeutic, toxic, or even used in a lethal
1: range. And for example, you could have two drugs that were maybe in a toxic or even a therapeutic range, but when mixed together as a potential lethal cocktail. So you might be gathering more information as you go, and that tends to extend the process. And also you may get more information as the investigation proceeds, right? You might think it's one thing from the scene and then the next thing you know, one of the investigators has come up with another little fact that you go, hmm, maybe I should explore that because the deceased had a, uh, knew someone who worked at a pharmacy and maybe got something from there. All to
0: find the true cause of death for the patient.
1: In these cases, you have to be very careful that expression, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's, it applies, you wanna get it right, you want the concentrations to be right, you don't wanna give misinformation. So it does take some time. But remember, for an investigation, a death investigation, you have to bring all the facts together. So we have to wait for all the autopsy results We have to look at the slides. If there are slides involved, we have to get other information from other agencies and they have to put all of that together to come up with the exact cause of death and incorporate the toxicology findings in that.
0: You can find more information about Dr. Barbara Jean Menyani and all of our guests on our website, radiohealthjournal.org. For more behind the scenes, follow Radio Health Journal on Facebook, Instagram, and X. Our writer-producer is Kristen Farah. Our executive producer is Amira Zaveri. I'm Elizabeth Westfield. Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. Most people are unaware that they have some degree of risk. A stroke can happen to anyone of any age at any time. How to protect yourself from a sudden stroke. Then, cigarettes aren't the only danger to your lung health.
1: I always tell all my patients, no smoke is good smoke, right? So even vaping can have long-term dilatory effects in your airways and your lung tissue.
0: All that and more on Radio Health Journal. I'm Elizabeth Westfield, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment here's a preview of what they're covering this week on viewpoints
1: i told my doctor i felt fine and in that same visit that same 10 minutes he found a baseball-sized cyst on my left ovary seven-time olympic
0: medalist Shannon miller shares her cancer story and what she learned along the way
1: then the most popular and bipartisan issue in the country 87 percent of americans favorite a very small number are opposed what's the issue uniting both Republicans and Democrats? I'm Marty Peterson.
0: And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs
1: magazine, Viewpoints.
0: And that's Radio Health Journal for this week.